The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Way back in 1936, Dale Carnegie wrote in How to Win Friends and Influence People, if salespeople could show us how their services or merchandise will help us solve our problems, they won't need to sell us. I think that applies to selling veganism in 2017. If someone has a problem with the way animals in the food industry live and die, we have a way to help solve that. If someone has a problem with cholesterol or prediabetes, we may well have a way to solve that. And if someone has a problem with news reports about climate change and a world that seems paralyzed in its response to that, you know what? We have a solution. No selling, just offering. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. I'm Victoria Moran author of Main Street Vegan, director of Main Street Vegan Academy, and host for this program. After the break, we will be bringing on someone who in the vegan world is fraught with controversy, and that is Brian Kateman. Brian is the founder of the Reducitarian Foundation. He's the editor of the book, The Reducitarian Solution, to encourage people who aren't interested in going vegan may become a little bit of the way. Good idea? Bad idea? I don't know. We'll find out after the break. And right now, I know we have a good idea. We're having a woman on who I've been calling her my favorite overachiever. (laughs) And she is Dr. Pamela Ferguson coming to us today from her hometown of Toronto. Pamela is a vegan registered dietitian with a PhD in nutrition. I always think PhDs should just go off to the beach somewhere after that because it takes more work to get one of those than most people do in a lifetime. She is in private practice and also on the advisory boards for Balanced and Conscious Eating Canada, two projects committed to increasing the plant content of meals produced by food companies and institutions. And she's the Director of Science and Education for Light Drop, a vegan supplement company. Pamela is also a mom of four plant-based kids and a marathon speed walker. Welcome, Dr. (laughs) Pamela. Well, thank you, Victoria. And it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm such a fan of your podcast and appreciate all the work you do. Oh, that's so kind of you. Well, I am so happy to be meeting you 
um, <clears throat> by Skype today in person, hopefully one of these days soon. So yeah. tell us, what came first for you, vegan or dietitian? I was a dietitian before I became vegan. I was vegetarian um, when I was doing my uh, training and my education. I became vegetarian after reading Diet for a Small Planet. Um, and that book really resonated with me and made a big difference for me. But I didn't really connect to community um, around my vegetarianism and um, I didn't necessarily understand at the time that I was part of a movement and feel that um, what I was doing would really make a big difference. And um, after a while, I kind of, um, you know, became a bit disconnected with that. And it wasn't until um, becoming vegan that I really felt uh, part of um, a community and uh feel that we really have an opportunity to change the world. What a beautiful story and a beautiful way to put it. Now, do you think that it's easier for you to feel part of a community because you're in a big city like Toronto? We were just talking, you're going to be at the Toronto Vegetarian Food Festival this year, the largest and we think the oldest um, veg fest in North America. Would it be harder if you were off in the boonies somewhere? I think it might be um, not to discourage anyone um, who lives in a small town from becoming vegan, but I've got to say I really appreciate our community and our vegetarian association here in Toronto so much. Such a loving and supportive community, really welcoming so many different meetups and activities and book clubs and movie nights, and um, it's wonderful. And so many people who are real activists and, and really committed to the cause. Yeah, just when you started talking about people in Toronto, I was seeing this parade in my head. Right, <laughs> exactly. People who have been around a long time and are very, very committed. So you do some work for a supplement company, and supplements other than B12 and maybe vitamin D are so controversial within the vegan world, even among the healthcare and nutritional professionals. Where do you come down on supplements for vegans? I'm very conservative when it comes to supplements in general, I have to say, and uh, the formulation that I've helped Light Drop to develop only includes B12, vitamin D, and uh, vegan omega-3s, EPA, and DHA. Um, and these really are, I believe that B12 is the only one that I would say is essential to supplement, but the other two are um nutrients that vegans are very commonly deficient in. It's not impossible to um, meet those nutritional needs on a whole food plant-based diet, but it is challenging. And uh, so I do believe that most vegans can benefit from um, taking vitamin D and uh, DHA, EPA, in addition to B12. But please, I do think everyone should be taking B12. Absolutely. Now, I want to ask you about the DHA EPA. I took it sporadically for years, and I would use a couple of teaspoons every morning of ground flax in something or other. And then I had my fatty acid profile checked for the first time. I was so low in everything. I was low in omega-6, which most people have too much of. I was low in ALA, the kind of omega-3 that vegans can get from flax and walnuts and supposedly mm -hmm. turn it into the EPA and DHA. I was even low in omega-9, which most people get from things like olive oil and avocados. And my, my non-vegan doctor said, you're half Italian. <laughs> Right. You know, aren't you ever eating any Italian food, any olives? So just help us out with this. Where are we on this whole fatty acid conundrum? I think it's really going to be the next big controversy in vegan nutrition. Well, um, the only thing I would say about that, and I don't know where you were at in general with your eating at that time, is that, but that some vegans do take a very low oil or low fat approach to their eating. And I would say, um, unless you are in a situation where you 
um, have cardiovascular disease um, and need to make some dramatic changes to your diet, I think for most of us, we don't need to go oil-free um, and we don't need to go very low-fat. And I would just ask us to remember that those are fat-soluble vitamins and that if we have a very low oil diet, it might be, or low-fat diet, it might be difficult for us to absorb some of those nutrients. Well, I am certainly enjoying avocados Good. <laughs> in a way Good. that I, I haven't in a while, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll bring some of those up because, you know, everything else was vegan perfect. I always feel now when I go to a doctor, it's sort of like taking an exam back in school. You know, I really want to ace this. Right, for yeah, the for the cause, yeah. yeah. So you use the term whole food plant-based diet, and yet you are fine with using some oils, as I am as well. And yet the terminology gets confusing. There are some people who would say that whole food does not include oils or, or green juices, which I also love. So where do you come down on the terminology? Well, I would say that uh, for me, whole food plant-based diet does include both moderate amounts of oils and also can include green juices. I think it's possible to avoid oils, um, but I wouldn't want people to be completely avoiding fat. Um, you, you mentioned avocados. Those are a great choice. Some nuts, some seeds. But um, unless you uh, are in a, a very advanced state with a, a medical condition, I don't think most of us need to completely avoid oils. And they certainly do um, make preparing delicious vegan food easier. Mm, oh, this is true. Now, in terms of, of the fatty acids, why do we need them? Why can't we just say, great, my cholesterol's perfect, all my other numbers are perfect, who needs a bunch of fatty acids anyway? Well, fatty acids do have a large role in many um, aspects of our body, but they are very important for our brain. Um, unfortunately, um, if you avoid them, you may be at increased risk of dementia. Um, we don't want those things to happen. And so it is important to have some fat in our diet. Well, thank you for clearing that up, because I think that's something that, that confuses a lot of people. Now, um, while we're in the area of controversy, I guess this is going to be my controversy show. I know my next guest <laughs> was a controversial figure. Now, you are also part of um, an initiative up in Canada to help increase the plant content of meals produced by food companies and institutions. And we all know there are a lot of people saying, well, we have no business eating food from companies and institutions unless we want to end up in an institution. But I'm thinking you see that a little bit differently. Well, the thing is, a lot of us do interact with institutions. It's wonderful to live a life where you don't need to do that. But um, there are many people in our society who are, um, in school or in university, or uh, they may be in hospital. Um, there's also, of course, the Department of Defense. And then there are also people who are incarcerated. Many people in our society who do interact with institutional catering. And there's a lot of big decisions that are made when, when a big food provider um, makes a decision about their food, like a big hospital makes a decision around their menu, that has an impact on a lot of people. It impacts their health, it impacts the environment, and of course it impacts animals as well. And I do actually have to say that I have some sympathy with your guest um, coming on later and the whole reducitarian approach. Of course, I prefer that everyone would become vegan. However, I think that we're not at a place right now where that is likely to happen um, in the near future anyway. And I think we need to look at um, what is happening. And the wonderful thing that is happening is that many people are um, eating less meat and eating more plant-based foods. And that is having an impact on their health, on the environment and on the animals. And if Millions of people will do that. Uh, that will also be a way that society changes. And this is another way of approaching it. Rather than trying to encourage individuals to make those choices, for example, through Meatless Mondays 
This is looking at the institutions and saying, let's uh, offer some plant-based meals, but also let's look at the meals that are not plant-based and see how we can increase the plant content. So, for example, taking a meatloaf um, that usually has ground beef in it and replacing half of the ground beef with ground mushrooms or lentils, for example, um, and therefore offering a healthier, less expensive, more environmentally friendly and more compassionate uh, product. Oh, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful idea. You also just gave me a recipe Leave the ground beef out of it entirely and yes. mix half lentils with half mushrooms. mushrooms. That sounds yeah. like a nice comfort loaf with some kind of good gravy. Yeah. Ah, now, well, while, while we are on food, you have a predilection for a particular salad dressing recipe. Are you going to share that with us? Well, I have a few salad dressing recipes that I love, but I'll share my favorite, which is tahini lemon. I don't know if that's the one you're referring to, but it's um, one cup of uh, tahini, one cup of water, and juice of one lemon, two cloves of garlic, and you just toss that into the blender um, and whiz that for about one minute on high. You can add a pinch of salt if you like. And this is the most versatile dressing because you can add miso, you could add fresh um, parsley. Uh, you can add so many different flavors to modify this. And I do love it on salad, but I use it as well on, you know, stuffed baked potatoes or on tacos or really this is my go-to dressing that I put on so many different things. And my kids love it, um, which helps. So it's great to have a kid-friendly recipe. Oh, that's wonderful. So you said one cup tahini, one cup water, the juice of one lemon, two garlic cloves, and then all the wonderful optional seasoning. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Okay. And I put that also in the show notes over at MainStreetVegan.net. So anybody who is uh, jogging or otherwise indisposed, we can uh, get you this <laughs> wonderful, simple dressing recipe. It just sounds great. Now, speaking of jogging, you don't. You do something else. You do race walking, which is unusual. And I think a lot of people would look at you and say, well, you know, she's young, she's fit. Why isn't she running? Why aren't you? Well, I did run for a long time. Um, and eventually I found I was getting too caught up in listening to my pace, uh, looking at my, you know, my uh, garment or whatever and trying to track exactly how many kilometers I had done. And I really wanted to just release myself of that somewhat. And I found that I really love endurance sports for the way that it frees my mind. I find it almost meditative to be out. I get a lot of my ideas um, while I am out walking and um, I explore many beautiful parts of the city. And I also listen to podcasts, which are very inspiring so I wanted to be able to focus on those aspects of it. So I changed to race walking. It still is wonderful for fitness. You do have to get used to the fact that people might think you look a little bit funny. Um, speed walking or just, you know, power walking. Maybe people uh, don't think that that looks funny. But when you really get into race walking and you're wiggling your hips, <laughs> you do attract attention. But people are usually really supportive. People are usually really encouraging. But it is slightly unusual. But I find that um, I don't have any injuries with um, race walking. I feel great, and I get a lot of the same benefits that I would get from running. So is, is there an international association or somewhere that people could go online to get information if they wanted to get into this? I'm sure there is. I, to be honest, I just have done my own training, um, and I have to do a lot of my training um, really late at night or really early in the morning because I've got kids, and so... I tend to just, I coach myself. I just do my own thing. But I did win our um, the walk category of the Toronto Marathon last fall, and I'm entering it again this fall. So uh, I'm not bad at it, but uh, wow. I'm, I, just, I just do it for fun, really. Uh, well, I'm completely impressed, and I love it when vegans get ribbons and medals and things as well we should <laughs> pamela what a joy to to speak with you thank you so much for all the good work you're doing up in toronto and i look forward to the day that our paths cross in person 
Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thanks so much, Victoria. All the best, and everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be bringing on Brian Cateman, the Reducitarian. Share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. We do have a call-in number for anyone listening live, and that is 816 816- Three four seven five five one nine. I also would like to direct your attention to what is going on over at MainStreetVegan.net. On our blog this week, we have a wonderful post with lots of summer soup recipes. So if you want to stay cool through the rest of summer and have some delicious soups, check out that piece. 
It's by Linda Voorhees, who is a master vegan lifestyle coach and educator. We had our first master class at Main Street Vegan Academy. So we have coaches and we have super coaches. Uh, Linda's company is um, out in the Sedona, Arizona area, and it's called Veganification. Also, I have a word from our lovely sponsor. Now, I am sure that you've noticed that the world out there is paying more attention to vegans and to the health benefits that accrue from eating a plant source diet. So getting positive attention is nice, right? But getting attention that saves us money, now that is even better. And that's what we're getting from the good folks at HealthIQ.com. HealthIQ is a fun educational site filled with quizzes to test your knowledge of healthy living. And they've also teamed with many of the country's top life insurance companies to offer savings on life insurance. That's the kind that protects your family if you're no longer here. And those savings are for us, for vegans, because the literature shows we live longer. And now we get to save some money because of that. So check out how much you'll save, absolutely free and with no obligation, at healthiq.com slash mainstreet. That is healthiq.com slash mainstreet. And we will put that on the Main Street Vegan show notes. And we have all heard, of course, live long and prosper. So here's a way to do both. And here is somebody I have been wanting to introduce to you for such a long time. Brian Cateman, an energetic, articulate, bright young man with a cause and a calling. And you know what? A lot of vegans don't like him. We're going to see how you like him when this interview is over. Brian Cateman is co-founder and president of the Reducitarian Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to reducing animal product consumption in order to create a healthy, sustainable, and compassionate world. Brian is the editor of The Reducitarian Solution, How the Surprisingly Simple Act of Reducing the Amount of Meat in Your Diet Can Transform Your Health and the Planet. That book came out just in April from Tarcher Perigy. Brian is a TEDx speaker and a leading expert on food systems and behavioral change. And he has appeared in dozens of media outlets, including the Washington Post, National Geographic, The Atlantic, Forbes, Fast Company, Salon, The LA Times, Fox News, and NPR. He is an instructor in the Executive Education Program at the Earth Institute Center, for Environmental Sustainability at Columbia University. Welcome, Brian. Well, thanks so much, Victoria, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, I, it, I like you so much. I remember the first time we met, we had coffee at a Starbucks over on the east side. I was surprised at how young you were. You really started looking into this at an early age. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, for, you know, for me, it really started in college. I was interested in environmental issues and wanted to make a positive impact on the planet. It wasn't until much later that I made the connection between animal agriculture and many of the issues that I cared about. But once I discovered um, how detrimental factory farming was, not only on the planet and on people's health, but also on animals, I decided that this was an area that I wanted to devote essentially the rest of my life to tackling. So what caused you to go the reducitarian route rather than the vegetarian or vegan route? Sure. Well, let's start by defining our terms, I suppose. So uh, a reducitarian, in my mind, is anyone who's interested in cutting back on the amount of animal products that they consume. So this could be a vegan or a vegetarian. Um, of course, vegans and vegetarians have reduced their animal product consumption, it's just that they've done such a good job that they've reduced their meat intake to zero or their animal product consumption to zero. But it also includes people who are following Meatless Monday or weekday vegetarianism or vegan before six. So for me, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. And if you've been to Staten Island, New York, you know that it's not the most progressive of places in terms of New York City. Growing up, I didn't have a lot of access to plant-based restaurants. My parents never liked the taste of vegetables or fruits. I always had steaks and hot dogs and buffalo wings for, for lunch and dinner. And so when I learned, um, you know, about the impact of factory farming on the planet, 
um, and on animals and on people's health. I knew that I wanted to make a difference. And so it was hard for me, though. I wasn't used to eating plant-based foods, but I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. And so I decided to be vegetarian. And that went really well for me in the sense that I was happy living a life that was in line with my values. I felt healthier. I felt more energetic. It was a little challenging at first, but once I sort of got the hang of it, I also enjoyed trying new plant-based foods. Um, the problem was, and this is the part where I have to be honest, I wasn't always perfect about it. So there were times in particular social situations that even though I identified as a vegetarian, I would occasionally find myself not eating a vegetarian item. So, for example, I remember one Thanksgiving under what I felt was social pressure from my family to not only have the mashed potatoes and the stuffing, but also to have a little piece of turkey. I did. I, I had a piece of turkey. And I remember my sister calling me out on it. And she said, I thought you were a vegetarian, Brian. And I said in that moment, you know, it's not about being perfect or pure, right? At least in my mind, the, the goal and with food choices is to make as many food choices as possible that are good for our bodies, that are kind to the planet, and of course, are kind to animals. And so through that process, I kept meeting people who would tell me that they could never be vegan or vegetarian. And so they decided to do absolutely nothing. They decided to continue to eat 275 pounds of meat a year. And I said, well, if you're not going to be vegan or vegetarian, you can still make a difference. You can still cut back. You can still eat more plant-based foods. And for some reason, this was a novel idea for people. And so um, in collaboration with a, a friend of mine, we realized that there really was a need for a term to describe people who were interested in starting their journey and starting their journey eating more plant-based foods and perhaps most importantly, unifying. In my mind, vegans and vegetarians are allies to the reducetarian movement because they're essentially the people who are spearheading that movement. They are showing people that you can enjoy plant-based foods, that you can enjoy the taste of vegan foods, that they are accessible, that you can find them. And so, of course, I'm sure we'll dive more into the specifics here, but that was really the, the journey for me and how I got started with this movement. I love your story, and I love how you talked about vegans are the most successful reducitarians. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So I think some people confuse reducitarian and flexitarian. Can you clarify? Well, flexitarian is someone who primarily eats um, plant-based foods, but occasionally supplements that with animal products. A reducitarian is anyone who's interested in cutting back on the amount of animal products they consume. So let me give you an example. My father, who I care deeply about, um, suffers from diabetes, is a little overweight, and I keep trying to persuade him that for his health, he should consider eating more plant-based foods. And he's starting to come around to that idea. For example, I think that my parents are now doing Meatless Monday at home, and whenever I visit them, I cook them a vegan meal. But my father is closer to the typical American who eats 275 pounds of meat a year than he is to being a flexitarian, say five pounds of meat a year. And so I consider my dad to be a reducitarian because he is someone who is mindfully trying to cut back on the amount of animal products that he consumes, but he's still eating way too many animal products in this current moment. I just sort of see the, the, the future here that he'll continue on that path. In the same way, a flexitarian is a reducitarian. They, too, have reduced their consumption of animal products. It's just that they're farther along in their journey. But I think the idea of, of reducitarian, uh, most important to me, is that it allows us to see that we're all on the same team. We're all part of this journey of individuals who reject factory farming and want a world in which animal products are at least significantly reduced. Right now, um, it'll be difficult for us to achieve our goal of reducing animal product consumption by 5% or 10%. I would love to see a vegan world as soon as possible. Um, but regardless of um, how many animal products you'd like to see in the world, it's going to be um, an incremental step, an incremental journey. And so I feel um, combining as many people as possible under this shared paradigm is ultimately going to get us to the place that we want, which is a world in which no animals are exploited, the planet is thriving, not suffering from climate change, and of course, people are living, as you said earlier, prospering and also living uh, healthy lives. Well, that is beautifully put. I'm thinking that some of my vegan listeners might be a little bit confused that the term factory farming has come up many, many times. And mm -hmm. something that occurred to me not long ago, because I think of myself so much of, of, as a vegan, I've been a vegan such a long time, 
But I was vegetarian before that, and I'm still vegetarian. One definition of vegan is pure vegetarian or complete vegetarian. And the vegetarian ethic is that we do not kill. And you could, in theory, get rid of factory farming, or if you're very wealthy, you could eat meat and consume animals that were not part of the factory farming system. They were still slaughtered in a slaughterhouse. So do you condone the so-called humane meat, or where do you come down on that? Yeah, I think what I say um, is that 99% of meat comes from factory farms, so they don't come from these idyllic, um, humane um, environments that we'd like to imagine. So I suppose to be um, to be a little bit playful with you, I suppose I reject the question entirely in the sense that it doesn't really matter right now, right? Because the the vast majority of suffering is coming from factory farms. And so I often meet meat eaters, for example, who will say to me that they're, you know, they're buying meat from um, not buying meat from factory farms. They're in the tremendous minority in comparison to most people who don't even give it a second thought. So it's, it's my view that right now we should focus our attention on the worst offenders. And the worst offenders are the 99% of farms that are factory farms. And we should all unite on that basis because that's obviously where most of the suffering is. There could come a time where there are no factory farms and there are farms in which animals are being killed. And I think that is going to be an important discussion to have. Personally, I don't want that world. I don't want a world in which animals um, are being killed for any reason. But I don't think that's where most of our energy should go right now, given that most animals are suffering on factory farms and they're not suffering or being killed on these idyllic um, farms that we might imagine. I'm glad you used the word imagine because I think a lot of the farms that are organic or or family are are not nearly idyllic. And I'm really glad that you brought up the statistic. I've seen 97 to 99% of of farms are factory farms are, are confinement systems. And yet I think, Brian, some people living in certain areas, I'm thinking uh, Ithaca, New York, Boulder, Colorado, Berkeley, California, you would think that 60% of the farms were little mon paws with three or four pigs that, you know, come in and eat at the table because this myth is so widespread, certainly in, in some parts of the country. Do you hear that? I hear that all the time. And I think it's important to remind people that um, not only is it that most animals are raised on factory farms, and even if you hear about a farm that is supposedly treating their animals more humane, which is certainly possible. We can't deny that. There certainly are places where animals are treated well. Um, As Michael Pollan says quite provocatively, they just have one bad day. But we know that that's not most of the time, and that's not most of the case. I think what's also important, though, is that this is a luxury, right? Most people can't um, don't have the time or the educational experience, the money, the access, etc., to be thinking about where their meat comes from, which is why we've also decided to focus on reducing rather than even getting into the question around better. Because, I, you know, I meet I meet people who are telling me they're choosing animal products from a more humane source, and they're just a blip on the screen um, because most people are not doing that. Of course, we all, you know, we'll hear discussions from people who say that they get their meat from better places. But the truth, Victoria, is that most people choose food based on price on taste and on convenience. They're not even remotely thinking about animal issues um, whatsoever. So it's important to to think about our target audience and to remember that this is the battle that we're facing. And of course, we have to do everything we possibly can to dismantle um, factory farming and the meat industries that are supporting those efforts that are creating these false marketing campaigns that have these images of happy animals um, on these, um, you know, on these these products when it's simply not the case. But again, 99% of meat comes from factory farms. It's important, I think, for both vegans and for for non-vegans to hear that because the discussion around humane meat or what do we want a world in which there are farms that animals are treated well, but they, but they kill them anyway. That, in my mind, is a philosophical question. It's not a reality right now. 99% of meat comes from factory farms. So to worry about that 1% isn't, doesn't seem relevant for me on either the vegan side or the non-vegan side. Beyond 
um, of course, we want to dispel the myth that, um, you know, animals are treated well on factory farms or in most farms. But beyond that, um, we shouldn't spend too much time, I don't think, worrying about what is basically a philosophical discussion right now. Right. And and, and an elitist food. I've said on this show before, I, I went to a, a panel discussion and there was a woman there who has one of, of the pig farms that is considered the, quote, best pig farms. And she said, oh, well, we can't afford our own pork tenderloin. <laughs> <laughs> I just right. thought that was very telling. So in, in your book, Brian, The Reducitarian Solution, which is a fabulous book, and I just want to say to vegans, there are a lot of vegans who have contributed articles, essays to this book. I contributed an essay to this book, and it's actually one of my favorite things I've ever written. Now, you call the book The Reducitarian Solution. I don't know if that's your title or the publisher's title, but how much of a solution is it really? What solid fact-backed statistics do we have to confirm that a, a cutback by enough people is really helping the planet or the animals or human health? Well, I, mean, I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of evidence that suggests that more and more people are reducing the amount of animal products that they consume. And we're also seeing an increase in demand for plant-based products, which is very exciting to me. I truly believe that in order to create the vegan world that we all want to see, we're going to have to make it easier for people to cut back on the amount of animal products that, that we consume. So I you know, applaud groups like Beyond Meat and Hampton Creek and Impossible Foods and others that are making that transition much easier. In my mind, Victoria, every single plant-based meal is one worth celebrating. To this day, every time I have a plant-based meal in my brain, I sort of have this, I don't know, this silent jump of joy because I know that that meal had a lower carbon footprint, wasn't responsible for the suffering of, of an animal, was good for my body. And so to your question, does it make a difference? I think each and every um, bite of food that we have makes a difference because it translates to um, what kind of uh, economy we want to support. It translates into social signals that we're sending to other people. And so this is really the idea, I think, behind the reducitarian solution and really the whole concept is that we want to celebrate every single vegan meal that people have because that is going to encourage them to continue that journey. I can't speak for everyone, but I know anytime someone has yelled at me or told me that I was a bad person, I instantly put up walls and became very defensive. And most vegans that I meet started by cutting back on the amount of animal products that they consumed. Many went vegetarian for a long time before they jumped um, into being a vegan. Um, the, of course, the, to, your, you know, to your opening, you said that there were a lot of vegans who don't like the reducitarian um, uh, sort of concept. I think there are a lot of vegans who don't, but there are way more vegans who do. There are so many wonderful, supportive, loving vegans out there who recognize that it takes time um, and just patience in order to transition. It takes an awakening. and We all discover it in our own way. But um, it's my belief that using compassion and kindness is ultimately what is going to create the world that we want to see. And so I, well over half of the people who contributed essays to the book are vegan. And many of our biggest supporters and donors and, and friends in the community um, are vegan. They understand that um, this is a not the only message we should be using. I think there's a place for vegan and vegetarian messaging, but I think we have to be open to diversifying our messaging when appropriate. So if you meet someone who says that they have absolutely zero interest in being a vegan or a vegetarian, you shouldn't say, well, goodbye. I think we can instead provide them with an alternative, which is, hey, have you heard of this reducitarian concept? You might be interested in starting out by doing Meatless Monday or Vegan Before Six. Who knows? You might enjoy it more than you think. And by the way, do you like margaritas and guacamole? That's vegan. vegan. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. I, I think this is, is part of why you do have so many friends and, and fans in the world, because you really do have a, a, a very um, kind and, and accepting way of speaking with people. I think that in this entire movement, there is a tug at this time in history between pragmatism and purity. And as you talk about the Reducitarian Foundation, the Reducitarian approach, I'm reminded of some history. 
Back in 1974, the International Vegetarian Union wanted to have their International Congress in the U.S., but they would only have it in a country that had a vegetarian society, and there hadn't been one here since the 1800s. So the American Vegan Society, which had existed since 1960, was willing to let some of its employees go off and start the North American Vegetarian Society so that the U.S. could host this big Congress, which brought 2,500 vegetarians from around the world. I think it's still the biggest vegetarian event that has has happened in this country ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And North American Vegetarian Society uh, sponsors Vegetarian Summerfest, which is a vegan event, but it's still North American Vegetarian Society. So I think it might be good if we can open up a little bit more to some different words and different approaches and still be very committed to the highest light that that we have personally. So I know, Brian, that some of the questions are, well, why not encourage people to go vegan? And they could do that at their own pace. And that way you're not lulling them into complacency that stopping halfway is just fine. Well, I'm very supportive of um, encouraging people to go vegan. I think veganism is one excellent tool for reducing societal consumption of animal products. I'm particularly excited about younger people because they're more uh, sort of excited and learning about the world. And so I, whenever I meet a young person, um, I often will lead with a, with a, a sort of more um, um, direct pitch about veganism. But you know, Victoria, my parents won't go vegan. I just, you know, despite despite the fact that I do this professionally, that I spend every day working on this, I go to Thanksgiving now, I don't have the turkey, they're not willing to go vegan. And so I, I, I care too much about animals to just stop talking to them about the issue. I want them to engage. And so um, instead, I will tell them that they should cut back. And I'll even modify my message more by saying that they should cut back not for the animals or for the environment, which they don't care about, but for their health, for their own selfish benefit. How lucky are we that there are so many reasons to cut back on the amount of animal products that a person consumes? It would be a very challenging situation if eating meat was great for the environment and great for the health, but bad for animals. It's not the case. There are so many reasons to cut back on the amount of animal products that a person consumes, and part of that is going vegan. But again, simply encouraging someone to go vegetarian or participate in Meatless Monday um, could have profound effects. And let me give just one quick example. Um, of course, if, a, if you met someone who was, let's say, a flexitarian, you might say to them, well, why don't you just go all the way? I mean, why not just be vegetarian at this point? And if you were successful in that, you would essentially take a person who was eating five pounds of meat a year and getting them to go vegetarian, which would be a reduction of five pounds, right? Five to zero. Imagine if you could sit down with my father who was eating 275 pounds of meat and you could say to him, you know, hey, Ross, I know you're not interested in being a vegan or vegetarian, but would you consider doing Meatless Monday? That would be a 15% reduction, which would be around a 40 pound reduction in meat consumption. So between the two, a five pound meat reduction and a 40 pound meat reduction, what is going to help animals more? The situation where you encourage people to eat less meat. So again, it's not about either or. We want to encourage people to go vegan, to do vegetarians, do Meatless Monday. Heck, I'm speaking at the Animal Rights Conference, right, next week. I'm going to be telling people that they should continue to support veganism. But when I go speak at an environmental conference or I'm speaking in other places, I modify my message. I think that's what we have to get used to is being open to thinking about what's ultimately going to help animals as much as possible. That's all that we have um to do that's that's our purpose i think uh, i i love it and i will see you at the ar conference i'm going to be on a panel about public speaking so uh that's going to be a wonderful wonderful experience there in uh, in dc in alexandria virginia next week well speaking of conferences and the like you had a big conference here in new york this spring, and you're going to be having another one in the fall of 2018 in L.A. Tell us about those. Oh, well, I'm so excited about the the Reducitarian Summit. You know, we had over 400 people come. Um, more than half was not vegan or vegetarian. 
And it was just an amazing experience to have various environmental groups, animal advocacy group, human health groups, food technology groups, really anyone who is contributing to this this growing movement of individuals who are deeply concerned about factory farming and are supportive of the idea of significantly reducing societal animal product consumption. And so, you know, I think we all came away with this idea that we were on the same team, that even though we may have small differences in terms of ideologies or strategies, we all recognize that we're good people who are just trying to do the best they possibly can to make the world a more beautiful place. And uh, I see tremendous value in continuing to hold these summits and bringing these people together because we need each other. I think this movement is still relatively small and it's our job to grow it and work together as, as best as we possibly can. You know, there's going to be times where we um, disagree about strategy and ideology. And I think, you know, to your earlier point, we certainly want to do what's in the interest of animals. But these are empirical questions, right? We might say, is a vegan best message actually more effective at reducing societal consumption? Or should we um, use more direct um, confrontational tactics because those are better at creating animal advocates? Um, I think we can disagree with people around strategy and around ideology, but we should still recognize that these are good people. These are all people who um, are really share a similar value and that they want a world in which animals are treated like they should and we should see a planet that's thriving. That was really the tone of the, the past Reducitarian Summit, and I'm looking forward to replicating that um, next year. We're likely going to be coming to the West Coast, which is very exciting. And, yeah, I invite everyone to join. It's going to be a wonderful time. Oh, that that's terrific. And you can find out more about the Reducitarian Solution, about the Reducitarian Foundation, and what Brian is up to just by going to reducitarian.org and I will have that and uh, the link to the book and to the social media on the show notes for this program. Brian, in just our last couple of minutes, I started the show today by quoting Dale Carnegie, but I think you are better at winning friends and influencing people than just about anybody I know, and I think you're still under 25, <laughs> the people that you got to write for for the book, The Reducitarian Solution, the people who endorsed your book, the press you have been able to garner for yourself and for this movement is extremely impressive. Well, a lot of people listen to this podcast who, who are educators and activists in various ways and would love to know some of your secrets. Can you help us out? Well, you're very kind, Victoria. And I think that's going to be a, a major part of our next summit is around action. My hope is that we'll have a lot of workshops that actually put some of these thoughts into action. So exactly that. How do you publish a book? How do you secure press? Um, how do you create viral videos, et cetera? You know, I think the, the number one lesson that I've learned over the years is that people are surprisingly very accessible. You can simply send someone an email and they are very likely to respond to you, especially if you have something kind and thoughtful to offer. And so part of the secret is just not being afraid and to actually start by reaching out because many of the people who blurred the book or wrote essays, I just emailed them and asked them if they would join. I think our message is is very um, palatable to a mainstream audience, right? Because these are individuals who either are vegan or not vegan, but they recognize that they um, want to be a part of this larger movement of, of individuals. The other is persistence, right? So if someone doesn't respond to your first email, you might want to write, write them again. And if they don't respond to that second email, you can write them a third time. Um, but I think um, just going for it and, and not being afraid to to reach out is uh, is really most of the secret. Um, of course, it helps if you can make friends and make introductions. Um, but, you know, when you have an idea that has the potential to create a better world, people want to pay that forward and want to support it. And so I'm grateful to people like you, Victoria, and many others who have been um, ambassadors for the Reduce Ontarian movement and are working every day to um, create that kind, compassionate world that we'd all like to see. It's exciting, isn't it? Because action is happening and change is taking place. I can see it. I can feel it. I know it should be 500,000 times faster, <laughs> but it is faster than it's ever been. So that's a very, very cool thing. So just a famous last word. What do you believe in most? Ooh, what do I believe in most? 
Um, I just know I'm an optimist. Uh, you know, I think that it's going to be painfully slow. And if I could snap my fingers right now, the world would be a much different place. But I really believe that decades from now, hundreds of years from now, we're going to look back on how we treated animals in utter disgust. And our future generations will celebrate this new world in which animals are treated as they should. And the world is a much kinder place. So I think it's um, tempting to be down or to feel negative, but we owe it to ourselves and the world and animals to just keep fighting, never stop and do everything we possibly can to create the world that we'd like to see. Wow. Gosh. Brian Kateman, thank you so much. I said that our, our first guest, Dr. Pamela uh, Ferguson, was my favorite overachiever. Well, you are definitely my favorite reducitarian. <laughs> and, and just congratulations on all your success and for all the good you're doing for the world. And thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting our program, to uh, Jeff Comfort, our engineer. Everybody, next week we've got a really big show. Kip Anderson, you know him from Cowspiracy, and now he's out there with What the Health. Fabulous film. I think Fox News said yesterday that it was making meat eaters obsolete or something like that. Let's hope that it's from Fox News to God's ears that eating meat does become obsolete. Everybody, thank you so much for being part of our program today. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. of spiritually conscious living start now for a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential tune in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with yogacharya ellen grace o'brien every thursday morning at 10 a.m central 8 a.m pacific only on unity online radio the voice of an awakening world Teachers through the ages have spoken of the importance of our mind and of being master over our thoughts. How often do we forget that we are the ones who decide what thoughts we'll hold and what thoughts we'll reject? The world's great teachers also remind us that our thoughts create our experience. We may not be able to change what is happening in our world, but we can always choose how we will respond to the changing situations of our lives. With a positive attitude, your chance for success in any situation can be greater. That's because a positive attitude will inspire you to look for workable solutions rather than allowing negative thinking to limit your decision-making. This law of life is brought to you by Unity. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. You know the saying, a good deed is its own reward? Well, moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward. It will also reward you with vibrant health, boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, and according to Yogi's and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to live in joy? 
Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free every Friday at 2 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down. <laughs> 